Hello and welcome to the Camera Channel podcast. My name is Michael Sanders. Despite the cancellation of the industry's annual pilgrimage to Las Vegas, manufacturers have still released a smaller moose boosh of cameras, lenses and software updates. Now nothing beats a hands-on review, but like everyone else, all we have to go on are the press releases and online videos. So this is nothing like a hands-on review. Joining me to discuss what we can, I'm delighted to be joined by two fellow DPs. First, making a welcome return to the podcast is CML's very own Jeff Boyle. Hello, Jeff. Good day. And joining us from his home in Berlin, I'm delighted to welcome Colin Elves. Hello, hello. Before we start, though, Jeff, you've been to more exhibitions than Colin and I combined. So I'm interested to know if you think there's still a relevance for shows like IBC and NAB. Well, after 25 years of going to NAB, I stopped going two years ago because it got less and less relevant to me and more and more boring. The good thing about the conferences is the physical presence of actually meeting people and talking about the stuff off the record. It's the gossip rather than the, uh, the shows and the conference that's interesting. And of course, unlike software, like an edit suite, with cameras and lenses, you want to get a hands-on, you want to feel it, you want to look at the images as much as you can. And you can't do that via webinar, as we're finding out. I suppose that's where shows like BSC are coming into their own, because you can actually get on and see the equipment. I, I'm not a massive fan of exhibitions, um, partly because what i found is when you go to them and you ask the manufacturer questions, they, res- they provide answers like, I'm not allowed to tell you that. Which I find slightly unhelpful. You're like asking them technical. It's like, how does this work? How does it work? What's what's going on here? Oh, we can't tell you that. It's like, okay, well, I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to gauge this wonderful new tech they're telling me about. If you want to tell me how it works, sometimes there's just the environment for trying out the equipment is not ideal. I can remember there was like a presentation on HDR monitors at BSC show, and they put it right in front of the K5600 display. So you're supposed to be sitting there, like, looking at their wonderful HDR monitors and they're showing the HDR technology. But all you can see is this massive reflection of, like, a soft tube. And that sitting, on, sitting cross-legged on the floor it was, it was the only viewing angle where I wasn't seeing this huge lighting reflection behind it. So it was sort of, like, quite often it feels like that, is that you're trying to, you know, they're expecting you to judge these, you know, these amazing cameras with low-light capabilities and you're just in this brightly lit, conference hall and they won't let you like take it off and do anything with it i think cinegear particularly is certainly my favorite show for looking at hardware the bsc in a way is a victim of its own success in that it used to be a small event for dedicated professionals and it's grown and grown and now the dedicated professionals can't get near the kit for the children Mm. I've spoken to quite a few manufacturers and they've basically all said they're not getting the right people coming to the stands. Mm. They've always in the past talked to working pros Mm. and they're not getting them now. And that's really interesting. I went on the Friday this year and bumped into so many people I know who obviously weren't working. So the professionals obviously are there, but they're spending their time talking to their friends and meeting people not necessarily looking at the stands looking at the equipment one thing i do like about shows especially shows like ibc is that you get to see the random manufacturers that you never knew about 
and invariably they're staffed by the CEO who is also the chief designer and the chief marketeer or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I definitely enjoy that at IBC. I don't think IBC will happen. I mean, I live in the Netherlands. I'm aware of the government restrictions. But even if they come off on September the 1st, um, I've talked to some manufacturers about this. They're not willing to take the chance that the restrictions won't come off. There's so much money involved. And I reckon the earliest we're going to have is maybe Cinegear in October. But ultimately it's camera image in November. And a big deciding factor for any manufacturer this year, for any exhibition, is going to be, are people actually spending money? A lot of capital budgets for the big broadcasters are going to be hit. Lots of freelancers have had their incomes take a massive hit, so they're not going to be buying kit. It's not going to be a great year for a manufacturer, and an exhibition is something they maybe just can't justify. But also people might not be travelling. I mean, if, you're, if your point of like you're spending thousands to spend a, um, a trade show and you're expecting people from all over the world to come, if people aren't all over, from all over the world aren't coming, then it's, it's not happening. I mean, you know... I think what may have happened is things like um, Cinegear become a US-only show mm. and Camera Image becomes a, a Euro-only show. Mm. So anyway, let's talk about what we're here to talk about. And a quick note to the listeners, this isn't a numbers review. We're not going to go through the specs of everything. These are just some random thoughts of what we think about the best releases from the past couple of weeks let's start with the c300 mark 3 i suppose the thing that intrigues most people is why they've decided to go for a camera that's super 35 and not full frame cynical me says to separate it from the c500 because otherwise there's not a lot of difference mm. but i think someone summed up the difference by saying if you go back a bit and you think 16 and 35 and the areas that they covered Canon have now defined the 303 as 16mm and the C502 as 35mm in terms of their markets. And I think that's absolutely a really good way to look at it. And I think the 303 is a great camera for documentaries, corporates, lower budget movies, TV series, reality shows. If I was still buying kit, I would probably buy one. Yeah, I think Cynical Me agrees with Cynical Jeff, but it's it's largely a question of market differentiation. They've got two products with two different price points and they needed something very obvious uh, to differentiate the two of them. And I think all the extra bells and whistles that you get within there. It's interesting what you were saying, Jeff, about documentaries, because it's got a Super 16 crop mode and it'd be interesting to see how good that is, because it opens up a lot of possibilities for some really small lenses you could almost imagine Canon bringing out a new version of the 864 workhorse Super 16 zoom. But I think you've got other lenses available now. You could shoot Super 35 and use the 18 to 80. I know it's only T4, but the camera is really clean when it's pushed. There's a lot of choices. I totally agree. I've got a Canon 18 to 80, and I think it's a fantastic lens. I think what really excites me about the C300 Mark III is just how small it is. And if you coupled that with a small lens like the 18-80, to you've got a really nice compact unit that you can use for shooting documentaries when you want to be unobtrusive, when you want to stay out of the way. Yeah. 
and some of the best stuff I've shot on documentaries has been an art on in my armpit, underneath my armpit, mm. with an extension viewfinder. So mm. the camera's pretty much hidden. Mm. Um, now, I would be using the C300 with stills lenses, 16 to 35, uh, 24 to 105, 70 to 200. But I think the really exciting thing will be coming when they put the RF mount on the C300 and you can use the new, the, all the new RF lenses. Just thinking about the kind of dockers I shot for 2020, for most of them, I would put a 16 to 35 on with the benefits of image stabilization, autofocus. Bloody hell. I mean, that on a 300-3, I'd be really happy. It's definitely the camera to look at, I think. If I was, if I was buying a camera now, I'd be, it would be, if not the, the top slot, then it would be a strong contender just because it, it has that, a very good balance of size, weight functionality, image quality, all of it, you know. It's got a niche that no other camera has. If you need to be fast, mm. it's got the built-in stabilization, focus and so on. And the autofocus works. If you've got time, then don't use the stabilization and do it in post. It's just a neat all-round camera. And to top it all, it can record internal RAW. Raw light, I think, is a great format. I've tested it extensively. Um, I can't find any problems with it. And, of course, it's mm. built into a tiny camera. It's not a huge, horrible box you have to hang on the back. You wouldn't be talking about the FX9 there, would you, Jeff? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so moving on, the Canon 25-250, to which is, on paper, really impressive. Yeah, it does look like a very cool lens. Um, I think the the key thing that I'm interested in is the fact that you know if you're combining the the 25 to 250 mil lens with the the, the existing 15.5 to 47 zoom lens from Canon, you've basically got two lenses that are going to cover pretty much everything that you're going to want to do, and they're both you know small and lightweight enough to be taken off. You know, we're kind of it's funny we were talking about the C300 Mark III. And I said it was like it was a camera that hit a the sweet spot. It just had about that right balance of kind of price size features. Ironically enough, I think Canon have done the same sort of thing with the the twenty five to two fifty. And maybe you might want to go. Well, actually, it'd be nice to have a twenty to two hundred. Maybe it ticks a lot of boxes in a way that you haven't really been able to say. Oh God, this lens ticks lots of boxes in the kind of the super thirty five mil kind of filmmaking era. You know. It, we're not in the place where we used to be when we had like a you know, J11 or HJ22 you know. yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. We're not there. You don't have that sort of like from like very wide to very long. But this feels like as close as you're going to get without somebody changing the laws of physics or you know, having to walk around with a, a lens that is going to break anyone other than Incredible Hulk. Yeah. I mean, I think it'd be a fantastic lens certainly in a multi-camera interview situation where you've got two cameras on your 25 to 250 mm. getting your tight shots and you're, you've got your third camera on a 17 to 120 doing the the, um, the two shot on the wide angle. We're assuming the two complement each other. Mm. I'm guessing from, you know, this is Canon. I'm sure they're going to be optically perfect together. It's slotting into that that group really well. I think they've thought about what they can achieve physically. Mm. If you compare it so the 25 to 250 range that we're used to, which are the old Cooks or the Optimos or Primos, 
it's a much smaller lens, much lighter lens. And I would think it probably optically has a better spec. You've also got things wide zoom you're mentioning, Colin, that they've slashed the price of. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. From 25 to 10 grand. Yeah. Do you still think we're going to get some complaints about the ramping? All long range zooms have ramped pretty much. But also, it looks like only ramping from between like 200 and you know, 250 or something like that. If you're you know, looking at the little yellow marker on the lens. They were very specific um, at the Kerner lens event. It's 187 mil. 187 mil. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's T3.9, it's like what, the ramp pick. So, it, you know, you're just under T4. Even, even with the ramp. So, you know, the, what are the chances that you're going to be in a situation where you need to, you start the shot, you're mostly like wide open at T95 and you're suddenly going to have to zoom all the way into 250 and then worry about an exposure ramp in the photo. I think we all agreed it's a fantastic addition to the range and not just the weight, which is really impressive. The one thing that I'm interested in is when I did the blind tests a couple of years ago, the 17 to 120 came out better than all the really expensive primes when people didn't know what they were looking at. The only lens that beat it was the Cook Minis. Um, the Summer Lux, the Summer Crons, the Masters, they were beaten by the 17 to 120. Is the 25 to 250 that good? Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what the lens is like in real life, won't it? So onto the Sony FX9 version 2 firmware. Um, I mean, a lot of it is stuff that we should have had in version 1, like 6G SDI. But there are some interesting new additions. Yes. And also, I mean, for me, the big thing is the touchscreen, both menu and focus. Why it was never touchscreen focus in the first place is beyond me. The other thing you can do now is load LUTs into it, which, as I've mentioned it before, is that's an important thing for me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's really important to be able to do that. Mm. And again, it's something that should have been there from the start, you would have thought. One new feature, though, is the IAF, and it'll be really interesting to see just what that's like in practice and what you can do with it. I've said this before, but we're only at the absolute beginning of what we will be able to do with AF and digitally assisted focus. There are so many possibilities. Oh. I think the only issue is, like, is a question of how good it is, you know. Does the IAF work? What happens when you've told it to focus on the eye and they turn their head and that eye is no longer in shot? How does it react then? Yeah. That, yeah. That's always my concern. Is it going to suddenly try and pull to the ear or is it going to just yeah. wait to see if the eye comes back in again? You know, And then it's less of a concern with a, um, with a focus pulling, you know. Well, as an FX9 owner, I'm obviously desperate to get my hands on it. And the other camera, of course, that gets the software update is the Venice, which goes to firmware version 6. Yeah, there's a couple of little things that I think are nice, like the um, extended data system from Primistas. Yes, and there's now metadata from the uh, gyros as well, which is quite interesting. I wonder if there's some form of image stabilisation coming in there. The other thing, of course, we need to talk about is Sony's advanced rendering transform. Their own lot format. God. Yes. And I can't quite figure out. I've tried and tried to figure out how this works in post. But it would appear that in the raw viewer, you have to render out a LUT. Oh. 
which you then use in your post program. Mm. Um, I don't get it. it. It does essentially seem to be like a LUT, right? It's a LUT, but it works on the data from earlier in the processing chain than, yeah. than a LUT does. So you sort of assume the idea is that they're going to try and encourage Resolve and Scratch and all the finishing programs to incorporate ARTs. That can be the only logical conclusion I can have for this. It certainly makes sense to me, but um, let's see. I love the common look format that's coming from the, the Academy because it's independent of color space. And mm. um, this seems to be, there's not enough information actually to make a decision. It's unfortunate that as the Academy is doing a great job with ACES and all these other things, trying to build a common framework for everyone to be operating from, you know, common standard. We've now got Sony doing their own thing again, which just isn't helpful. We want to be able to, as filmmakers, see we have to use multiple tools from multiple manufacturers and all be using the same system. As much as they may say, oh, this new thing is so much better than this current system you're using, you don't want to have to be like, when I'm using Sony, I have to use the AOT, and when I'm using Canon, I have to use like Canon's special transformer. No. Please, no. I mean, that's the, that's the thing I love about Asus. You know, it's the whole idea is like, what you see on set is what you see in the, the theater. You know, there, yeah. there is a system that is common to everything. And there isn't these like technical engineers in the middle kind of tweaking things this way there and tweaking things that way here. And the great thing is that if you can't afford a monitor or a system that will cope with ACES, if you're using standard cube files, you can load LUTs that include the IDT, the RRT, and the ODT into the system, and it will emulate the whole ACES process mm. on a standard 709 monitor. Mm. Um, why do I know this? Because I built them with Nick Shaw and they load into quick segue into the bolt they load into the bolt so everyone viewing on the set is looking at the image effectively after it's gone through an ACES process a standard process and it means that everyone is looking at the same images it's just we've got that working now why are you going outside that Yes, the new Bolt is fantastic, not just because you can load LUTs, but also the latency is amazing. Staggering. And there's a great write-up of the Bolt in Film and Digital Times. Uh, the other camera we should talk about is the Kinfinity, and I must confess I'm not massively au fait with Kinfinity. <laughs> Where do I start on Kinfinity? Um, great potential. They've oh. had great potential for years. Oh. But they will not listen to anyone in the industry. I know lots of people who try to talk to them. Uh, I was introduced to them to try and someone wanted me to advise them. And they went, no, we don't want to know that. Fair enough. Why do you have separate ISO and gain settings? Why do you record to such awful formats? Oh. And when you change, you've got to ProRes RAW. It's just, come on, guys. Use formats that other people use. Mm. I introduced them to the Academy to try and get them to do an IDT four years ago. Nothing. They're not a widely known brand. They don't have any major advantages in terms of 
technology over anything else. So they have to be substantially cheaper to get into the market. And there are an awful lot of good cameras around. In, in comparison to, say, Zcam, can you fitting drop the ball a bit? Because in terms of tech between the two companies, I'm not sure there's a huge amount of like difference. You know, I'm not sure that the image qualities you're going to be getting out of a Kinefinity are that different from what you'll get out of a Zcam. But with Zcam, they seem to have engineered it to be a very have a lot of very interesting and useful features, and at a, like a very reasonable price point. It does seem to be like a perennial problem with them. Um, with the Mavo, when they were still allowing you to record CDNG in camera, yeah. they were still having issues with the transform and the only program that would handle it properly was Scratch. I, I don't know what the issue is. I'm not sure if it's just, it's a very much an engineering led company and engineers being engineers know, they know best. You know, like if you tell them like, as a filmmaker, I want this, they'll respond, that doesn't make sense. This is a better way to do it. It might also, to be perfectly honest, be a question of, you know, they're using a lot of off the shelf components. They're just trying to copy red being slightly cheaper and, and not really ticking all the image quality boxes to actually really compete in that sense. And it's a good reminder of actually how limited it is not being able to get hands-on on the thing and not being able to see it at somewhere like an exhibition really? or review. Yeah. Anyway, that leads us neatly on to our last item, which is yeah. the Aperture yeah. LS300X. What yeah. I find interesting is what we haven't got. I mean, it's an interesting light, but it doesn't seem to be a step change. And I'm just wondering if we are getting to the point of seeing the limits of what LED lighting can deliver. Well, it's interesting because when we did the LED tests back in February, we found that basically none of them gave as much light out as we thought they would. I have to say, I'm a lover of big lights. Yeah. I like 18Ks. Yeah. And the... LEDs really aren't very punchy at all. The thing I like about the aperture lights full stop is they use the Bowen system for attachments. And I think it's a really sensible approach. And I think the colour of them is pretty good. You accept they're not that bright. But then they don't have to be because the cameras are much more sensitive. Mm. The, the thing I have with this 300X by colour is I just don't know what it's for. You know, every light out there is a tool and you use different tools for different purposes. You know, like, like Jeff, I love like a massive light, just like literally as big as it can be. If it's the size of a house, then I'm happy because that gives you that beautiful soft wraparound. That's what, that's what I like. That's what I want. And you can't do that with an LED because they're just not powerful enough to, to fill out that, those large soft sources. And the problem is you're reaching a point where to get an LED powerful enough to compete with the Joker 800, you're not really getting it that much more power efficient. You know, for me, the LEDs have always been super useful because you could power them off a battery, which meant that they could be either they could be small and hidden away and you needed some little backlight somewhere, you know, just coming in and you can stick it in or it was quick. You know, you, you, you have something you can run it and you don't have to hunt around for a power cable. You don't have to run a power line. But the problem with the bicolor is you're now competing against most other LEDs within that range don't do bicolor, they do RGB. So all of a sudden, this bicolor is less, you know, the, the, it has less of the advantage of versatility to get with LEDs, you know, because the, the, the added versatility of an RGB LED is that all of a sudden you're not tied to just daylight or um, tungsten, you can now do color effects. So if you're doing a music video and you want to have like a, a full prime red, 
on your artist then you can do that with an rgb you know i, I this is the problem i have with the, the, the new aperture i don't know what it's for it's not an rgb it doesn't have the flexibility of the rgb and it's not as bright as a single cover yeah, yeah what you need most of the time is a good clean skin rendition yes i don't need to do police effects every day <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, it's great that I can, but reality is I don't. It has to be said, Aperture Lights are doing very well. I know a lot of people have got them. So it will be interesting to see what this one is like in the flesh. It's also, it also becomes a question of the market, who you're pitching for. I'm just thinking about the last few jobs that I did. The last two, it was like drama stuff. It was a music video and a, and a small corporate drama. As I've just developed a habit of now, it was all HMI. And I like HMIs because I know that I can get good skin tones out of them. I'm not stressing about, am I going to have a weird problem in the grey? I don't know, it's just something odd about the skin tones on certain LEDs. They, they just never quite, no matter what you do with them in post, you can never quite get them looking natural again. All the latest LEDs do have that far red. Um, it was quite interesting on the test that we saw that. And they do look much, much better on skin tone. Still not as good as tungsten, but, you know, because of these tests, I had lots of chance to talk to manufacturers. And basically they all said they can make them better, but we won't pay for them. That's a really interesting point to leave it on and leave our listeners hanging. I want to wrap up and want to end with just one question, which is, if I was to let you have one of the items we've talked about for a week, which one would it be? Let's start with Jeff. I'd go for the C300-3 because it's the piece of kit I'm most likely to be wanting to use in the future. Although I really like the FX9, the pictures from it, I hate it physically. I hate the whole hang-on extra bits to make it record raw. I don't like the touchscreen yet. It's getting there. But I want the FX9 for a year's time from now not the one there is now. Um, Venice, I know well already. So, C300-3. Okay, and Colin, what would be your uh, your pick? I think I'd agree with Jeff that I'd, I would like to have the C300 Mark III for a week and use it properly on a production from end to end to get familiar with it, to run some exposure tests to see you know, what, what it's good for and what it's not good for. Try out all the new tricks and whistle the project. Well, that's really interesting. As an FX9 owner, I'm obviously desperate to get my hands on version 2 firmware uh, and can't wait to see the benefits that will bring. But I have to admit, I am very curious about the C300 Mark III. It's a fantastic camera yeah. in a small package. Yeah. And yeah, I'm looking forward to putting it through its paces. So yeah. it seems we have a clear winner. Uh, thank you guys thank you Colin thank you Jeff it's Mm. been a pleasure to talk to you both and that's it for another podcast I'd like to thank my guests Jeff Ball and Colin Elves if you've enjoyed the podcast do let me know you can find us on Facebook on Twitter and on Instagram just search for the camera channel podcast or you can leave a message on our website mjsanders.co.uk slash podcasts Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.